Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Um, We've been working our way steadily through a series on the book of James. And the book of James is a letter written by the younger brother of Jesus himself to the scattered church of Jewish converts throughout um, what was then the known world, pretty much. And what I love about the book of James, what I think many of us have been appreciating about this letter that James wrote, is just how earthy and practical it is. It's not about pie-in-the-sky theology, but it's about what it really means to live like a Christian in this messed-up world that all of us have to deal with every day. And perhaps this is going to be one of the most earthy and most relevant topics that James will write on for a lot of us. How many of you, and you don't have to raise your hands, but just kind of check yourself to see if this message is going to be relevant to you. How many of you right now are involved in some kind of conflict with someone else? Whether it be a sharp recent argument or a long-standing feud or even a years-long or decades-long cold war with someone. Maybe it's a sibling Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's someone who used to be a very good friend. And over the years, that relationship has changed into something very different. And so if there is some element of conflict in your life, I think this message is going to be relevant for you. The title of the message is The Roots of Conflict. And by the way, you see what I'm wearing, so let me just get this out of the way right now. Welcome to Best Buy. Can I help you? All right, so there, it's just so you can stop being distracted by my shirt. All right. I should have never bought this shirt. So let's look at James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. And James writes, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have... So you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You know, often as a parent, when we catch our, our, when I catch my children misbehaving, especially when I catch one of my kids mistreating another one of my kids. And if you're not a parent yet, you will be amazed just how often that takes place. As soon as you have more than one kid, one of them will be abusing and mistreating and sinning against the other. I guarantee it. You don't have to look far beyond your own children to understand the truth of this doctrine that man is a fallen and sinful creature. So when I see one of my kids mistreating another, I'll usually say something like this. Hey, why would you do that to your sister? Why on earth are you doing that to your brother? And when a parent asks that question, too often we ask it rhetorically. We're trying to prompt a confession, but really we think we know the answer. The answer is you're evil. That's why. I don't want to know the answer. But the, tr- the problem is this. <clears throat> I think too often the most powerful questions in our lives are asked rhetorically, when in fact we should insist on actually getting an answer. 
I read a fantastic book by Susan Scott called Fierce Conversations. And in this book, she taught me a phrase that has stuck with me for years. And that is the phrase, interrogating reality. And I pictured reality like a prisoner tied up and blindfolded on a chair, and I'm just beating him, going, you're going to tell me what's up. And the idea of, of this, this interrogating reality is when something's going on, we make a very accurate, quick observation about what's going on, but then we don't bother to explore truly why it's happening. When we ask why, most of the time it's a self-pitying, woe is me, rhetorical question. Why? And when God tries to answer that question, we're already walking away. Go, I already know why. Everything's just messed up. The world is against me. The universe is out to get me. Everyone has a better life than me. But what if you really ask the question why? And I want to encourage us to stop asking powerful questions rhetorically. Because if you insist on understanding why things are happening and why we do what we do, you'd be amazed at the world of insight that will be available to you. And so James starts, and we're going to look at a series of conflicts, one that flows into or out of the other. And the first place to start is just simply this conflict with others. Because that's usually when the word conflict actually enters our consciousness is, oh, I'm not having a good relationship with this person. I am in conflict. James opens by asking this simple question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now, in the Greek, which you can't see here, um, that's not exactly what it says. A more accurate translation would be, from where quarrels, from where fights? In other words, James is so agitated, it's what we call compressed grammar. It's when we, like, like the way we say, you know, we don't even finish the sentence. We, we sometimes look at the situation, we say, what the? You don't even finish that. Everyone knows what comes next. You fill in the blank. But we're so agitated, we can't even complete the sentence with proper grammar. And quite often, compressed grammar is the tip-off that the writer is very agitated about something. And what he's agitated about is that there is conflict going on among the Christians that he's writing to, that is at a level that is hard for him to understand or accept. And he's asking the question, but not rhetorically, saying, where does this come from? If we are the redeemed people of God, how do we explain that this level of conflict and brokenness and sin and harm still exists among us as a community? How do we reconcile the way we're living with one another with the fact that we are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. You know, a couple of years ago, I attended a networking gathering of pastors from all over the country. And one of my colleagues whom, whom I haven't, colleagues whom I hadn't seen in, in like a decade, um, shared a very interesting, by interesting I mean really jacked up story with me. He had recently taken on the senior pastorate of a church that had a very long history in one of our major cities, but it was a church that was in really big trouble. And he had come in really on a rescue mission because this church was the dictionary definition of dysfunctional. It happened that the church sat on a prime piece of downtown real estate in their city. And this church had chewed up and spit out a long series of pastors. And so this guy was pretty courageous to take on this pastorate. But while they were busy chewing through all these pastors, some of the elders in the church had worked out some, some, 
legal finagling with the paperwork so that the deed to the property was now in their names. And if the church happened to shut its doors and dissolve, they could liquidate all the assets, including this massive multi-million dollar piece of land and divvy up the proceeds among themselves. You see where this is going. And so these, this small faction of elders made it their mission to destroy this church so they could cash out. They stood to gain millions each if they could destroy this church. The problem was that my colleague had come in. He was a courageous man, full of faith. He truly believed before he took this pastorate. I mean, I'm talking about this is one of those that everyone in my profession is not with a 25,000-foot pole would I go near that toxic, stinking. There's no way I would touch that. And he <laughs> dove in. I mean, he just went for it. And what I love about this guy is he's so full of faith. He truly believed God's going to redeem the situation. But now he was a fly in the ointment because he stood in the way of the agenda of these leaders to destroy the church. And every time they tried to, to scare him away, to frustrate him, he stuck in because God was working through him. He told me a long series of stories, each one more fantastic than the other. I don't want to say too much about it, but I'll give you one example. One day, he was in his office about to initiate some things, some reform movements that were going to really help the church move forward. And he heard this banging outside his door. Someone was taking three-inch nails and literally nailing his office door shut so he couldn't get out. I want you to think about that for a second. Because you hear a story like that, and he was trying to, he's like, he couldn't get out. He had to call someone else on the good side and say, can you bring a hammer to the church and get me out of my office? Now, you, you hear a story like that, and your mind is spinning. You're thinking, how on earth do people get to this place? And really, I think that's, if you hear that, that's the spirit of what James is feeling as he asks this question. We are the people of God. How do we explain this? How does a church get to this state? By God's grace, Harvest has enjoyed 20 years of virtually conflict-free, politics-free ministry. It is nothing but the grace of God that we've had that, but that is no guarantee that in the next 20, I won't feel like jumping off a bridge. And so it's really up to God, and when we lose our way, no church is immune to this. And so if we join James in asking the question, where does it come from? I think we're going to gain a world of insight. And James begins uh, to take a stab at it. By the way, he says, what causes these quarrels and fights among you? So he's clearly addressing the Christian community. He's not saying that we have fights with the world around us. He's really centering on the kind of fights we have with people around us. Listen, the conflict between groups in the world that have very different and opposing views and interests, that's easy to understand. When Democrats and Republicans fight, I'm not surprised at all. I expect them to fight. When Crips and Bloods fight, who's surprised? But when the redeemed people of God, saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, are tearing at each other this way, we have to struggle to explain that because that observance, that, that fact that such conflict exists among Christians, if we don't explain it, if we don't understand it, it's a threat to the gospel. 
Because it makes us feel like maybe this whole Christianity thing is all a bunch of mumbo-jumbo. In the end, it has no power even to save a marriage. It has no power to save a friendship. It's all just whatever. This is meaningless stuff. I believe as James begins this exploration, he says, no, this conflict has a source and we can identify it and root it out so that we can move forward in the life that God has called us to. And so the next thing he says is he talks about how conflict with others really spills out of conflict within ourselves. He says, to the, he says this, is it not this? I, I love James. He asks a question and then he goes, let me give you the answer because you guys don't know. All right. Just look, well, where does this come from? I'll tell you where it comes from. Isn't it the fact that your passions are at war within you? Did you catch that? Your passions are at war within you. There is a conflict in ourselves that spills over into conflict with other people. See, when we're in conflict with other people, the easiest thing to do is point to what they did, and that's why we're in conflict. Oh, we wouldn't be in conflict if my friend weren't such an idiot. I wouldn't be in conflict with my kids if they just did what I told them. Here's the thing. Maybe that's true of this particular conflict, but you've got to dig a little deeper than that. Where does this anger, this desire to fight, this bitterness and rage come from? And what James says is there's something happening inside of us that causes the relationships outside of us to be affected. It diminishes our ability to love other people because we have a problem going on inside of us first. When I engage in mediation with people, we spend the first two or three meetings just letting them get it out of the system, the blame game, this, this finger pointing. It's always someone else's fault. I am perfect and the rest of this world is so messed up. What do you expect from me, Pastor Dave? I'm a perfect person walking through this world and everyone's just beating on me. Who wouldn't act like I am? I say, yes, maybe it's true. Maybe you are blameless in many situations. But have you paused to wonder if the real brokenness is beginning somewhere inside of you. When James says your passions are at war, that word translated passions is the Greek word hedone, from which we get the English word what? Hedonism. Hedonism. That's more than just a resort in the Caribbean. It's a way of thinking about life. A way of thinking about life that says, I will pursue my own satisfaction, my own happiness, my own pleasure, without restriction, any way, at any cost. Do you get that? It's a way of saying, what matters most supremely in this universe is that I am happy at the end of the day. And if I am not happy, nothing else really matters. You cannot talk me out of the funk I'm in, because until I get happy, I refuse to listen to anything else. And if I can find a way to get happy, I don't care what the rules are. I don't care what the boundaries are. I don't care what it costs you or it costs me. I will have my happiness. Insert expletive here. Do you get that spirit? That's really the spirit which James is pointing to. This This is the root of the problem. And in fact, the birthplace of conflict among others is that somewhere in us, is a decision that is forming, that is growing, that I will have my satisfaction, my way, my victory, my pleasure, at whatever cost, without restriction. 
Because that's what truly matters supremely in this world. Now listen, we cannot get the wrong idea about pleasure. A lot of people over history and even today have this idea that Christian life and pleasure are incompatible. That if you really want to be a good Christian, you've got to work yourself up to this point where you don't really get that much into pleasure. I think that's crazy. You know, Paul reminds us in his first letter to, to Timothy... Speaking about false teachers, he says, here's what the false teachers tell you. They will say it is wrong. By the way, that's blueberry pie. It's my symbol for all good things on this earth. They will say it is wrong to be married and wrong to eat certain foods. But God created those foods to be eaten with thanks by faithful people who know the truth. Since everything God created is good, we should not reject any of it, but receive it with thanks. Meaning that God is not opposed to pleasure. He is, in fact, the one who invented the concept. He is the provider of pleasure and the one who has given us the very idea of pleasure in itself. The problem is not that pleasure exists or that we should desire it, but it comes in a different way. Hedonism is not just the appreciation of pleasure. It's not the grateful receiving of pleasure. It is the idolatry of pleasure. It is, what, it is the idea that pleasure and happiness are the greatest aim of human life. And even more than that, it's saying my pleasure and my satisfaction are the greatest end of human life. C.S. Lewis, the, the great English theologian, writer, thinker, wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. How many of you have read The Screwtape Letters? So that's a fascinating book where he imagines a dialogue, a series of letters exchanged between a demon named Screwtape and his nephew. Is that right, Wormwood? <clears throat> and in this imaginary exchange of letters, this demon uncle is mentoring his demon nephew in how to wage war against God and upon the human race. And the way that he deals with the role of pleasure in that spiritual warfare is very interesting. Listen to what he writes. This is, again, the voice of the demon uncle mentoring his demon nephew. Who but C.S. Lewis would think of something like that? That's just crazy. Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that in which it is least natural, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. <clears throat> Let's be honest. We all like pleasure. Is there anyone who hates pleasure, Just wears sackcloth and itchy clothes and eats cruddy food all day long? So... We all like pleasure, and I don't think we need to feel badly about that. In fact, I strongly prefer pleasure over pain. Very much so. The problem is not in liking pleasure or even in acknowledging its inherent goodness. It is in the love of pleasure. 
Because love by its very nature is a thing that must be fed and it keeps growing. And sooner or later, especially when the objects of our love are opposed to one another, to love one thing will come at the expense of loving another. We all know that's true. If you are in love with someone, you would never see a valid situation in which that person can love you and love someone else just the same. Right? Many people, strangely, many men have tried to pull that one off. Look, I love both of you. No, you don't. Because we can't accept that. Both of us want all of it. And to love one thing will come always at the expense of loving another. Now, when they're compatible loves, that's not a problem. I love all four of my children almost exactly the same. Depends on which minute you happen to catch me. I love my kids. And to love one kid doesn't mean I have to suck love away from another kid. You get your love tomorrow. I got to give it to... Compatible loves are okay. But when opposing objects of love are vying for our hearts... To love one thing will by necessity come at the expense of loving another. The way James describes it is that these passions, this this love, this idolatry of my own happiness, my own pleasure and satisfaction is a thing that is at war within me. And remember, James is writing to a Christian audience. So as Christians, by definition, we are people who live in tension between two opposing forces. Before you become a Christian, there is no tension. There is just, the only tension is, I love pleasure and I just don't have enough of it yet, so how can I get more? And if we're honest about it, here's the truth. You see this spirit captured very well in Psalm 73. We sometimes look at the carefree way in which those outside of Christ enjoy their pleasures, and we think, dude, you know, every time I see a Tesla Model S pull up next to me, at a red light, and I think, that dude is saving $250 a month on gas, and what a kick-butt way to do it, man. Look at that car. And what I realize is, even if I had the money, I couldn't have that car without stumbling all of you tremendously. So that's where our offering's going, huh? Yeah, it's, you, know that's what you, you know that's what you'd be saying. And so I look at that, and I think, gosh. And I see the guy just with the shades on, and he's like, he looks so happy. He doesn't look at all concerned about this $80,000 car he's driving. Like, dude, your car costs so much. And it doesn't seem to phase you at all. And what I covet sometimes is not his car, but the carefree way in which he enjoys everything without once calculating what this looks like, what this represents, what the opportunity costs of that, how many compassion kids could you have sponsored. That calculus never happens for him. And if I'm honest about it, sometimes that's the envy I struggle with. Look how easy it is for them. And this love is growing all the time, and it wants to win the battle for our hearts. So there's a tug of war in the Christian Because we have now genuinely discovered the love of the things of God. But the love for the things of the world doesn't just leave us like magic. So whereas before we only had one road, we now have two facing us. And every day, there's a tug of war going on inside of us. That's what James is saying. Is it not that there's this war going on? And what his implication is, is that when conflict rages in you, it's because that war is being won By the wrong love. That somewhere inside of you, a decision is hatching 
that today in this season, I want to love that more than I want to love God. That's really the root of conflict. If you've ever sat in the middle of a conflict situation and say, why would anyone do this? What kind of person acts like this? You really look into the heart and what you'll find is somewhere upstream of that conflict. That person made a decision that their happiness matters more than anything. That they will love themselves at any cost without restriction, without regard to the cost it will levy against others. I will have my happiness, and if it breaks your heart, so be it. What do you want from me? In fact, James describes what a tension this really is. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. He describes a situation in which we have this tremendous longing and the inability to get it, And as a result, we rage and we lash out. That's the way it works. You know, it's okay to like video games. But when your mother or your wife comes in the room and sighs and like, so you're going to just keep playing that for another three hours? And when your female authority figure says things like that, what do you feel in your heart? If you feel... This growing, burning resentment. Look, I work hard for our family. I hardly take any breaks for myself. Just get off of me. I just want to play this game. If you start being angry and you look at that person who you love as now an impediment and an obstacle to the thing you really love right now, that's a problem. That's your first tip-off. When the people you say you love become an obstacle to the thing you really love, that's God's way of signaling to you, you've got your love priorities a little jumbled inside And if you leave that in its present state, something bad's going to happen. It's okay to like pleasure. It's a serious problem to fall in love with it. Because as you fall in love with anything, it will demand more and more and more of your fidelity and commitment. And it will start to block your ability to love other things that have a rightful claim on your heart. That tension you feel inside will erupt into conflict. But here's a further insight James gives us. If the inside conflict that I feel with my own heart spills over into conflict with others, where does that inside conflict come from? And ultimately, that internal conflict is a sign of a conflict we're having with God. It's a sign of a conflict we're having with God. Is the love of pleasure really the ultimate source of conflict? I don't believe that it is. I think there's something more fundamental than that. The conflict within us arises out of a conflict we have with God. Because ultimately, it is not really the love of pleasure, but it's really the love of self that is messing us up. It's not the idea that I love these things. You can make it sound so innocent. What's wrong with video games? What's wrong with a really nice car? What's wrong with a great house? It's not, there's nothing wrong with those things. The problem is that I love them disproportionately, inappropriately. And I love them because in that moment, what I'm saying is I really love myself more than I love you and more than I love God. And when I live in that state, every other relationship 
will follow suit. If the God who has done nothing but good to me can be disregarded. If the God who is perfect can be disregarded. How on earth will I ever really love someone who has done bad things to me and who is far from perfect? I have a pretty good wife. Really good. You guys will all have to settle for the second best lady in the world. But having said that, she will never hold a candle to God for his track record of being loving and good to me. She has been pretty great. God has been perfect. And if I can experience brokenness, thank you, John. If I can experience a broken relationship with God, if I can experience coldness and bitterness toward this God, something has broken inside of me in terms of what I understand about this world. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. What he's saying is, you know that what you want is so jacked up, you can't even bring yourself to ask it. You know, you know, we've talked over the years frequently about getting a building, but every time we do it in this area, especially in Schaumburg, where so many great facilities are available, we'll be up against a nightmare zoning battle. They don't like churches in places where they get rich off of property taxes and stuff like that. So every time I think about that headache, I'm like, man, wouldn't it be great if, like the stories I hear all the time, some church would just go out of business and give us their building. Look, we're done. We can't make this work. Would you guys just take our building free of charge and fill it with, with life again? And so we joked many times, why don't we just find a church in our area that looks great for us and just walk around it Jericho style seven times and pray, God, would you please make this church collapse so that we could have their house? Now, even as we joke about that, can we ever really pray that prayer? By the way, we've changed it. Now we're thinking we should walk around and go, Lord, grow this church so big, so fast, they outgrow this building and have to leave it for a bigger place. And then we'll scoop up and be quick to retrieve it, right? There are some things that even as you want to ask it, something, that last remnant of good sense in you goes, no, you can't. come on, that's too much. You can't ask that. Hey, can I borrow 20 bucks from you so I can take my real friend out to the movies? There are just some things you know better. You can't ask it because that last little bit of shame that's left hanging by a thread is going, no! And that signals a broken relationship. Is there anything you do which you don't feel comfortable bringing to God in prayer? Asking his permission for it. I'm going to take that job. I'm going to go out with that person. I'm going to marry them. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And someone says, let's pray about it. You go, I'm not sorry. I don't need to pray. I, to, you know, I, I think I, the Lord already told me. So let's just move on. Is there anything in your life you feel uncomfortable really laying bare before God? Lord, am I making an idol out of my children's extracurricular activities? Lord, am I worshiping my child's future? Lord, have I turned my girlfriend into something more than my girlfriend? Is she now the object of my worship and devotion? Is there any question you feel uncomfortable bringing before God in prayer? If there is, that's a sure sign that somewhere in your relationship with God, there's conflict. You're avoiding him. 
And he says, you, even when you work up the nerve to ask, you don't receive it because there's no way God could answer that prayer and not threaten your relationship with him. He'd be crazy to give you what you just asked for because it would unravel you. It would put the nail in the coffin of your faith if you got what you just asked of him. And because he is gracious and because he is merciful, often he will not give you what you asked for because it would ruin you to have it. And so what James is hinting at is that quite often the conflict I experience within my own heart is because somewhere upstream, I have entered into conflict with God. And I've said to him, I will love me more than I will love you. Because in the end, it's a trust issue, isn't it? Because I believe I can love me better than you've been doing. I look at your track record so far, God. It isn't stellar. I give you a C minus. Look at the relationship I'm in. Look at the state of my life. Look at my checking account. Look at this jacked up car that I'm driving. You haven't done a great job of loving me. And so I'm going to take a stab at it and try to love me on my own. God, thanks for the effort. But I declare independence from you. And when that decision is made, whether verbally or in your heart, the beginning of the breakdown ensues. You know, this isn't rocket science. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring it to a close this way. Ultimately, we break our relationship with God because we believe that he has broken trust with us. We believe that the life he's given us is unacceptable and that we truly can make a better life out there on our own. Isn't that really where the heart of that conflict comes from? And some of us, if we're honest, are at the cusp of that right now. You're right at the edge of that decision, about to say to your own heart, you know, maybe I'm done with this whole God thing. What if I tried it out there in the wild, wild west? What if I shook off these shackles and just ran free and enjoyed my life for a while the way I want to enjoy it on my terms? Here's what I have to say to you as a fellow Christian. The life we will make by loving ourselves will never be as deeply satisfying as the life God will make as he loves us. Let me say that again. Because I know how seductive the idea is to strike out on your own. The life that you will make loving yourself is never going to be as satisfying as the life God wants to give you as he loves you and you love him. Now, if where your heart is heavy is, yeah, but I want to love God. I just don't right now. I feel so cold. I don't feel anything but sleepiness at this moment. I feel dead inside. Here's the good news. We don't conjure up love for God from nothing. But our love for God is always a response to his love for us. That's the whole theme of our retreat. It's beloved. We love God because he has first loved us. So if what you feel in your heart this morning is a coldness, and I sense that there is a lot of that going around right now at harvest. I may be reading too much into it, but sometimes I walk around during praise, and I just gaze at the faces, and I'm alarmed at how many faces seem completely just blank and unengaged in the process of worshiping. 
And I'm not saying that to judge you or to look down my nose at you. I'm saying maybe it's the case that right now, in your heart, there is a deadness to Jesus Christ. You know all about him, but you feel nothing towards him right now. You're struggling with that. Let me give you this encouragement. You are not commanded to just love God out of a vacuum. I'm not saying to you today, shame on you. Try to love God better. I'm saying, listen, he loves you so much. And as you dwell on the great love of God for you, he will begin to unlock your response of love back to him. Loving God is not simply a responsibility. It is the sign that we have understood how loved we are by him. The life you make by loving yourself will never be as good as the life that God will make for you as he loves you and you love him. Don't we know that that's true? That an honest day's wage earned by the sweat of our brow always feels more satisfying than the empty pride that comes from ill-gotten gains, right? When you steal money, when you win it in some game of chance and you walk around strutting like, yeah, I'm a baller. You're not a baller. You're just lucky or crooked. You didn't really earn that the right way. And that's why you have to spend like a madman just to feel any sign of life. Hard-earned living is far more satisfying than ill-gotten wealth. Am I not right? The selfless love of a committed spouse if you have it, is far better than the desperate, selfish pleasure of a one-night stand. Maybe strange flesh is exciting for a night, but it cannot compare to a lifetime of walking in intimacy with someone who has promised you everything they have forever. I know the seductive power of the call of someone else. But it will never deliver what you think it promises. That God's way is far superior to the seduction that is luring you out. Here's another one. A life of moderation where the the periodic uh, highlights are truly enjoyed is far better than a life of excess that numbs your heart to all pleasure. I'm glad that I am staunchly middle class. I'm glad that when we go on vacation, my kids are still as excited as drug addicts who found a stash. Okay? I mean, those kids are just like, oh, my God, vacation, vacation. You know, and we take them to, like, these ghetto places, and they're like, look at this. I never want to go home. We could be in a Motel 6. They're like, oh, I love this bed. I'm like, kids, don't lay on that outer cover. It's disgusting. Do you hear what I'm saying? I'm so thankful that we have just little enough that the happy moments are still so genuinely happy that I can still feel something when good stuff happens. That when I save up my money and finally buy that thing I've had my eye on, it feels like the reward after a long and patient journey. I used to be in a different place financially. I used to have a lot more than I do now and something strange happened to me. I lost that. It was just like vacations were an entitlement. Where are we going this year? Oh, this place stinks. And you go into the store. Nothing is like, I'm going to save up. I want it. I got it. I want it. I got it. And 
you know, over time, that feels like a kind of freedom, but it's a real loss because now your heart is so numb. What do you got to do now to even feel something? To feel truly thankful, truly excited, truly anticipating. When everything is so amazing 24-7, what's left? And so I think there's something to be said for a simple and modest life punctuated by moments of great gratitude and celebration. I believe that's the life God calls us to. Not a life addicted to pleasure, but a life of faithfulness punctuated by great pleasure. I believe a life spent serving God and being poured out for others will ultimately end with more joy and peace and satisfaction than a life desperately spent trying to please myself. So as we wrap up, I'll simply say it again. The life you build by trying to love yourself will never compare to the life, the good life, which God wants to give you as he loves you and as you love him back. And that's where it all starts. And if somewhere in that story, there's a break between you and God and you begin to trust your own self and your ability to love yourself more than God's desire to love you, well, that conflict with God will create conflict within yourself. And eventually, there's no way around it. You will find yourself in conflict with just about everybody you care about around you. So if you find yourself embroiled in conflict with someone today, the answer is not simply to say sorry and move on. I invite you to reflect this morning, truly, on where the real root of that conflict lies. This morning, we're going to have communion, as you might have guessed from the setup in front. We're going to do what we've called in the past Scottish communion. That's what a lot of people refer to it as. Rather than having you come up in, in turn and just be handed everything, here's what we're going to ask you to do. We're going to begin with you at your seats, just reflecting in prayer, listening to the Lord. And my invitation to you is, as you sit reflecting, reflect on this. Consider just how much God has loved you. That on the worst day of your life, this is still going to be true. He shed his blood and he gave his life for you. Because of Jesus, none of us can ever say nobody loves me. No one. Because of Jesus, on your worst day, you can still say, hey, at least Jesus still loves me. You don't have any idea, do you, how valuable it is to be able to say that. I'm telling you, we've got to dwell on that this morning. And rather than trying to conjure up some artificial love for God, let's begin this morning at the table of communion, thinking about what these elements represent to us. They express the great love of God for us. So sit in your seats, and as you reflect and pray, when you feel ready to receive these elements as a physical sign, a reminder of the love of Christ for you. We're going to invite you to just come and take one of the empty spots at the table. And one of our leaders will serve you the cup and the piece of bread. And we just invite you to sit at the table and just reflectively take those things. And when you've eaten and had the cup, then we invite you just to say a quick prayer and empty that seat again for somebody else. And we'll, we'll do this for probably 10, 15 minutes. And so do sit and reflect.
but don't dwell too long. As you feel ready, just come to the table, approach, and receive the elements. Amen? I'm going to invite the praise team to return to the stage, and as they're returning, I'm going to ask you to bow with me in prayer. I know what your eyes may be telling you. That as you look at your life, and then you compare it to the life other people have, it just doesn't seem right. Maybe recently you were invited to someone's home as a guest and you couldn't even enjoy yourself because you look at the house they have, the things they have, and you think, why has God given me none of this? Why does it feel like I'll never have any of this? Where is the fairness in a God like that? Maybe you look at your partner, your mate, your children, and you look at the people others have in their family and you think, why don't I have that? Where is God? Be patient because God loves you and the story is still unfolding. Do not succumb to that seductive voice that says, try it on your own. Love yourself. Do something for you. Because the love of God is always greater than the love of self. Those who persevere will discover that very truly. So as we get ready for communion, I'm going to invite us now to just enter a time of reflection. And I'll just pray for us right now. Jesus, on the one hand, will come to a table and eat a piece of bread and drink a cup of juice. And that's all it could mean. But on the other hand, You told us that as we do this, we would remember you. So help us to do just that. Help us to remember why we do this and what these elements mean to us. There will never be a moment in our lives where you will stop loving us with everything you have. We pray especially for those who are in a very dark place in the journey of their life. And it's hard for them to see where you are right now. Through this time of communion, Holy Spirit of God, come and just settle upon them. Especially those who are struggling to see you right now. God, we pray that you would open the eyes of their hearts to you and help them where they cannot help themselves. We pray you will meet us here. In the great name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.